You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio. 89.7 WGLS-FM. Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM proudly presents Career Talk, a monthly program featuring information on career and academic planning sponsored by the Rowan University Office of Career Advancement. And now, here's your host, the Assistant Director of the Office of Career Advancement, Ruben Britt. Welcome to Career Talk. I'm your host, Ruben Britt. Plato once said, music gives a soul to the universe, wings to the mind, flight to the imagination, and life to everything. Our guest today is a reflection of that quote, because her music gives a soul to the universe, wings to the mind, and life to everything. Joining us today is multi-Grammy-nominated artist, Ms. Sherry Winston. Sherry, welcome to Career Talk. Well, thank you so much for having me today, Ruben. Appreciate being able to speak with you and your students today. Now, Sherry, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your career journey? Um, well, I started playing flute in junior high school through college. I went to Howard University graduated and was trying to figure out for the longest time how to turn my degree into an actual working career. So being that at the time that I graduated, we really didn't have music business courses, I really didn't have a clue and sort of had to figure out everything myself, I guess, through trial and error. And that entailed playing in small club small venues around the New York area. And eventually I spoke to a friend of mine who was a vice president at Avon Products. She told me to start to concentrate on corporations and doing work for corporations. I really didn't know what she was talking about. And she said, you know, they give functions, uh, dinners, for their clients, sometimes they back not-for-profits, and they will take a table or two for something like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund or the Urban League, et cetera, et cetera. And if you talk to that corporate vice president, they might consider hiring you for their events. And that was really the start of a long career uh, for me, a stable career, because before that, it was really hit and miss. And I was working for record companies for uh, many years, Columbia Records, Electra Asylum. Um, after that, I started doing independent record promotion, meaning that I promoted the artists that were on a particular label, whether it was Columbia or Arista or whomever. Uh, to radio, trying to get radio stations, at first just college stations, to play the records of our artists. And eventually, um, the commercial stations, which used to exist, which no longer exist. Uh, so that kind of started it for me. And eventually, I got fired at Columbia Records because I had the audacity to make a CD and get it out there nationally on the market because that's what I really wanted to be doing, not promoting other artists, but performing performing myself. And at that point in my life, um, I had already bought a house. I had a 
uh, apartment in New York City. In addition to the house, I had bills for days, to say the least. And the day I got fired, I had to figure out, oh, my goodness, how was I going to pay for all of this as now a working musician and a fired employee of one of the biggest record companies in the world? And I said a little prayer, a big prayer to God, and started figuring out, how am I going to do this? I've got to make this work because this is really my dream. This is what I've been wanting to do it. Now, here I am. What's next? So I decided to really sit down at my desk every morning to be there by 10 o'clock, which is the time that we used to start when I was at Columbia Records and the other record companies, and stay there all day long until 5 o'clock, calling corporations, making contacts, calling not-for-profits, trying to get together a database of people that could possibly hire me, reading all kinds of magazines and newspapers to see potential people that could hire me, uh, networking with friends and family for the names of people that they might know at not-for-profits that might be giving an event or a concert at some point or fundraiser. And that's what I did. I I made sure that I got up in the morning, I went to the gym, I worked out to give me the uh, energy and the mental acuity to be able to do all of this and the fortitude. Because when you wake up in the morning and you don't have any income, (laughs) the first thing you're going to do is go into a serious depression. And I couldn't really afford to do that. It was just me trying to uh, manage all of this. And all of these years later, it has really worked out. And it's, um, I guess, a system that I've put together myself of uh, many, many Rolodexes. I must have like 10, 12 Rolodexes in my uh, big cabinet, which is a very old-fashioned way of working, but it works for me. And I have everything categorized as to not-for-profits and also corporations. And for an example, I'll have like, Pepsi-Cola, who would be the correct person to speak to at Pepsi-Cola, that, uh, the marketing person that might be involved with getting events off the ground for Pepsi. Mm. What's his phone number? If I ever get this person on the phone, what are some of his statistics, meaning is he a golfer, is he a skier? Uh, what are his interests? What are some of the things that he likes to do? So that when I actually get this person on the phone, we can talk about something other than, hey, where's the job? Where's the gig? And uh, will you hire me? That's not really how it's done. So I got to know literally hundreds of people across America, some through uh, contacts of other people, sometimes names that I had read in the New York Times, and I would just call up information or look it up online and get the person's phone number and address and then start this long process uh, of sending them information first about me and my band. And then if I saw something written up in the New York Times about their company, you know, maybe their financial earnings, oh, they just added another 3% of earnings to their uh, bottom line, or, you know, they're deciding to do more diversity and inclusion, I would cut that article out and send it to the person and saying, thinking of you and just in case you didn't see this article. So, you know, I did that a lot, and I still do that today, to just keep my rapport with people. And 
get them to think of me as somebody that they know and trust. And when that opportunity does come in to hire me as opposed to another group. Wow. Uh, one of the couple of things you said that was uh, so key, and, and I share this with with uh, students, um, um, and one uh, is the, the importance of networking. And the other piece mm-hmm. that you talked about was um, working out. Um, I do a uh, workshop on uh, seven points, uh, six points of success, and that's one of the things I talk about is uh, keeping keeping up your health through working out, eating right. Um, you know, doing things that kind of release the stress that one might face, whether it's in a job or if they're in pursuit of a job. Uh, but that's so important. Now, um, you talked about your, your your journey and things that you did. What musicians were influences to you when you uh, were developing your craft? Uh, first, I started, you know, as a very young person um, back in high school listening to Herbie Mann. And because he was about the only flutist that I had heard of, and then I finally heard about Yusef Latif. But it wasn't until I heard a recording of Hubert Laws that I totally lost my mind. And this is a gentleman that had a degree from uh, Juilliard School of Music, one of the finest um, universities, or I should say schools, conservatories in New York City, uh, internationally known. And Hubert was amazing because um, he could play with the, you know, be a substitute for the New York City Ballet or the New York City Opera or the Philharmonic and then turn around and play at the Village Gate with Ron Carter, famous bass player, or do something with his own group. And um, I actually got to meet Hubert because he was doing an event uh, I don't remember the name of the group at the moment, but it was a not-for-profit. And he was actually playing a dance, which was amazing. Mm. And he was playing saxophone. And then he picked up the flute and started playing flute. And I was I just sat there with my mouth open. I couldn't believe what was coming out of his instrument. And I walked up to him. I introduced myself, and I said, you know, I would love to study with you. You were just amazing. And you know, he said yes on the spot. And being that we both lived in New York, you know, I was able to go up to 96th Street where he was living at the time in Columbus and uh, take lessons with him. So that was part of it. And then he actually uh, invited me to play along with him and his band and some of his siblings. Um, oh, yeah, the first family of at jazz. Carnegie Hall. <laughs> Pardon me? I said, yes, the first family of jazz. You know, you got Right, exactly. Eloise. uh, Eloise, Oh, yeah, Eloise. Deborah. Oh, my goodness. Unbelievable. So I kind of sat there with my mouth open, you know, when he invited me to play and um, had a big conversation with God. And I said, oh, God, please help me. (laughs) (laughs) How can I possibly get on stage with this man? I mean, I, I admired him so much. I looked up to him. And he was like an angel playing the flute. You know, it was just like God had blessed him in so many ways. So, you know, I took the shot. I was scared to death, but I went and played with him. And uh, the bad part about him uh, offering, you know, that spot to me was Hubert, we would all play the melody together, including Ronnie. And, you know, if if there was background vocals or something, Deborah and um, Eloise would be singing. 
And then Hubert would do the first solo. And my flute said, oh, no, 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 we're going home. We're not playing after Hubert Lawrence to get out <laughs> And Hubert pointed to me, and I almost died. I was like, oh, my God, how do you how do you improvise after Hubert Lawrence? I mean, he has played every note that God created. There's nothing left for you to say. You know, just put your instrument in your case and go home. And, I mean, I'm on stage with this man, and I'm looking around, and it was like, Okay, girl, put up or shut up, get off the stage or do your thing, you know. And and what I had to tap into was play you. Don't try to play Hubert Laws. You can't play Hubert Laws. Play Sherry Winston. That's right. Whatever that is, you know, be true to yourself. And you might not think that much of yourself compared to him, but you got to put your best foot forward. And that's what I did. And I mean, I got a huge round of applause, which was kind of a shock to me. And that let me know right from the get-go that audiences really don't know boo. They really don't. I mean, they're going to react to you for a whole lot of reasons that might not have anything to do with your talent. You know, what you're wearing, your body language, right. how you approach the music, if you're jumping around when you're playing because you're enjoying it, if you got the audience clapping with you. You know, what is it that you're doing as an individual that shows your personality and your talent? Yeah, and right. That, that was like such a learning moment for me because you can't be somebody else. Like you can, you can listen to John Coltrane all day long and try to copy his notes. I mean, I used to try to copy Hubert's, um, at the time, albums, you know, 33 and a thirds. I would slow down and record the uh, phonograph and try to catch all of his notes and play his notes. But when I got up on the stage, I had to be Sherry Winston. I couldn't be Hubert Laws. I mean, even though I had practiced, you know, copying his licks, that's not what I heard in my head when he pointed to me. I heard what I heard. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good lesson to students out there that you have to be you. You've got to be true to yourself. You can't be anybody else. You can admire them, but you can't be them. You're so right. You know, I I had the opportunity to uh, host a jazz show for six years. Um, and, you know, I've heard Herbie Mann, Hubert Laws, Eric Dolphy, Youssef Latif. And so when I heard your sound, and even uh, Bobby Humphrey, but when I heard your sound, it was mm -hmm. different. Um, and I said, wow, this is tough. She's a uh, Bogart tough. I, so I said to myself, uh, so I want to ask you this. What, what Can you describe your creative process? You talked about be, being true to yourself. Uh, describe your creative process when you write new music. Well, when I'm writing, I say that I'm writing through God, and it's because I don't think I'm just so brilliant that I'm coming up with this stuff on my own. Mm -hmm. um, usually I'm swimming or skiing or doing something totally unrelated to music. And all of a sudden I'll get this motif in my head. It could be And I feel like that's what God just gave me, that little motif. Now what are you going to do with it? And unfortunately, I don't hear anything after that. It's like, oh, heck, what do I do with this? So I might sing it into my phone mm -hmm. um, until I can get somewhere where I can get to a piano and write it down. 
then what comes after that? Okay, God gave you that motif. Now, what are you going to do with it? So my process at that point, once I decide I'm going to do something with this song, I turn off everything in my house, you know, because I have music on constantly from the time I wake up until the time I go to sleep. There's some kind of either classical music in the morning, you know, to kind of calm my nerves down and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the afternoon, I'll listen to uh, Pandora and I'll put on a number of, of different jazz artists, you know, very low in the background. So I'll turn off everything and I'll keep humming that first motif that I've got in my head. And I could be, you know, trying to, va- not really vacuum, but uh, wipe off you know, the tops of counters or something, do anything other than think about this music, but just keep singing that motif over and over. All of a sudden, here comes the next part. So then I'll go and I'll write that that part down. And then I'll I'll sing what I have so far and keep adding to that. And that has sort of been my process. Um, when I first started out, I couldn't get past that first motif, to be honest with you, forever. I just didn't know what to do with it. And I started working with a pianist who was like a little Stevie Wonder. This guy was like, his name is Sam Johnson. He's still alive, He's living in California. But I used to invite him over to my apartment. I had a little keyboard there. and He would come over. And I would say, Sam, I've got this little motif. I don't know what to do with it. And God bless him. He would play 20 things in a row that could go with that. And I'd say, wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Wait a minute. Would you play first? He didn't know what he had played first because he had just, you know, given me like 20 ideas. And I said, Sam, you can't do that because I can't remember what you just did and neither can you. When I hear something I like, I'm going to tell you to stop and do that again. Mm -hmm. So he would do that, and then I would write it down, and we would keep adding to it. We would be going back and forth, and I might do the whole A section myself, and then the B section I couldn't figure out. And, of course, he was like a little genius. He would just say, how about this? And I got to the point with him because he was so fluid, and so he was like a George Gershwin. I mean, stuff was just pouring out of him. I would get a, a recorder, tape recorder. And just tape him. That's the only way I could control him because he couldn't control what was coming out of him. He would hear 10 things at once, you know, and he was like, how about this? How about that? And it's like, wait a minute. Hmm. So I would listen to it after and pick out the thing, you know, that I thought was the best um, section to go with what I had originally written. Well, you sound like, go ahead. We we did one of the first songs that I wrote for my mom called Song for Jocelyn, and I wrote the whole A section, and uh, Sam wrote the whole B section. And I did that on one of my symphonic rock suites also. I had the beginning part of it, and I couldn't get past that. Wow. So finally, I, I think it maybe was months later, maybe a year later, I don't have the exact timing of it, I finally got to the point where I could finish something myself and just you know, make myself sit down and or walk around my house or whatever I was doing to get the whole thing. And that's pretty much I work alone now. You're listening to Korea Talk. We're, we're joined today by multi-Grammy-nominated uh, artist Sherry Winston. Uh, she's been sharing a lot about her career journey 
and um, some of the things that she's been doing along the way. We're going to hear more from her in just a minute, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Career Talk. We're here today with multi-Grammy-nominated artist, Ms. Sherry Winston. And um, before the break, you were talking about your, your process. Now, you had, the, uh, in terms of creating music, you, you had the opportunity to, to also work with some um, uh, music icons such as Stevie Wonder and the late, great Grover Washington Jr. What was that like? Oh, my gosh. Well, Stevie, I got to him because um, Hal Jackson, who was the first black DJ in the United States, uh, he was at WBLS in New York, which is like one of the largest R&B-oriented um, radio stations. I'm sure you're familiar with it, you yes. know, being right in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And Hal and I um, became friends, and then eventually I became friends with his wife, um, Debbie Jackson. And they used to invite me to all kinds of performances that were gratis. Um, you know, I played at the Apollo for them and all kinds of fundraisers for uh, different organizations that he was supporting. Or actually, he had Hal, Hal Jackson's talented teams. And I went to St. Thomas, you know, to work with the girls there and also do a little sort of like a mini concert to tracks for them. So we really became friends, and uh, Debbie knew that I had recorded Pastime Paradise, which is one of Stevie's songs, and it was a song that Coolio had made uh, famous as a rap, um, and he called it Gangster's Paradise, but it was really Stevie's Pastime Paradise. So she knew I recorded that on one of my CDs, and she said, girl, you know, we're going to do... Hal's 96th birthday party, 96-year-old birthday party, and we'd like you to come and play. And we've invited Stevie to come, and I'm not sure if he's going to come or not. He said he is, but, you know, you never know what might happen. Right. But we'd like you to come and work with this band and, uh, you know, get them to rehearse the song with you. And then if Stevie shows up, you know, we want you to start playing the song as he comes in. So I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to get a chance to play with Stevie Wonder. So, of course, I had my big conversation with God again. And um, sure enough, Stevie walked in and, and uh, Debbie started yelling, me, Sherry, get on stage, get on stage, hurry up, hurry up. And I got on stage and started playing Pastime Paradise. Stevie walked in and you could see him moving his head around because he was trying to pick up where's this music coming from <laughs> and he could tell of course that it was live and he was like drawn to it so he had some handlers with him and they got him to sit down so I started um, walking towards him because I had a wireless mic on my flute and Stevie stood up because he could hear I was coming close to him and he took out his harmonica and he just started playing with me, and I just said, oh, my God, God, please help me. <laughs> <laughs> then we started trading fours, which, uh, to clarify that to your audience, it means I play four measures of improvisation, and then Stevie would play four measures of improvisation. And we were, we were like throwing the music back and forth to each other, and I was having a ball, I'll tell you the truth, because um, 
all of my practice of this song and recording, I knew the song backwards and forwards. I didn't have to worry about that. So, and then uh, Valerie Simpson was there of Ashford and Simpson as a guest, and she jumped up and got on piano. She pushed pushed the pianist off the off the bench and started playing, and I was like, "Oh man, I don't believe this. This is just too much for television." <laughs> so that's how I got to play with him, and um, he really enjoyed my playing, and he told his aide. I want to record with her, make sure you get all of her information. So I gave his aide my information and I took his aide's number and everything. And I swear to God, Ruben, I must have pursued this guy, the aide, for close to a year. I kept mm-hmm. calling him. He wouldn't return the phone calls. It was really heartbreaking because I knew that Stevie was sincere and I just couldn't get to Stevie directly. Wow. So it never happened. And um, that was sort of a heartbreak because I got to the feeling that if I had a chance to record with him, maybe I could have gone on tour with him or something or done a few concerts, major concerts with him, you know, which would have been amazing. So it never happened, but I'm not closing the door that, you know, I might be blessed at some point and, and have that opportunity. Right, right. And in time, in God's time, you know. Um well, you know, you have to believe, and you have to believe uh, something that my mom always used to say to me, if it's for you, you'll get it. That's right. You know, and, and if it's not, it's not going to happen. So you've got to put yourself in the position to always saying yes to everything. Not not freebies. I don't do freebies, you know, come and play for free and all that kind of stuff that people ask me to do all the time, because I have a mortgage to pay like everybody That's else. Right. I've got That's bills. Right. That's right. So... They have to respect my talent and the time that I've put in practicing and getting the degree and going through all of the emotional, what I call terror of being a independent jazz musician. I've been through all of that and I deserve to be paid, you know, for concerts or or events or or whatever else you're asking me to do. So, um, you know, life is interesting. Uh, you know, short of that, if you ask me to come and play somewhere and we can agree on my performance fee, whether it's with my band or playing the tracks or, or whatever it is, um, I'm going to come and do it because who knows what's going to happen from there. Right. You know, it may sound like, oh, man, this is like a lame gig. It's playing for a dinner and I don't feel like doing this or it's a reception, you know, and people are going to be talking and they're not really going to be listening. That's not for you to decide. What you have to do is go and and give your best performance, regardless of the venue or who's in the audience or people talking. You can't control people talking or clinking their glasses or yelling at each other or whatever they're doing. Just go on and do your thing and be you, you know. Now, one of the and, things, and God knows, go ahead. You know, when you do that, there may be somebody in that audience that can help you or wants to help you. Right. You know, you might not even have to ask them. They may come over and say, "You know what? My my group is, um, you know, the Links or the AKAs or name any group. You know, the NAACP, and we're having a luncheon or we're we're providing. We want to do a fundraising concert, and we'd like you and your band to come." There's another opportunity. Right. Now, one of the things that you also, one of the many talents that you have is that you also uh, uh, wrote a cookbook. Can you sh- 
briefly shed some light on that. Um, that came about because I got invited to perform at the 1996 Olympics for a month. And while I was there, me and my band basically didn't have anything to do all day. We played for one hour in the evening for champions and for their clients, people that they provided paper for. Uh, it was champion the paper company, not the athletic company. So I had all this free time during the day, and being a golfer, my keyboard player and myself would go out and play golf a few times a week and whatnot. But so much of the time I was spending at the pool, and I had always wanted to write a cookbook. And I said, you know what, I've got a whole month of basically free time all day long. All I'm doing is sitting by the pool. I'm swimming. I'm relaxing and whatnot. I'm reading. Rather than, you know, read, why don't I go on and, and start this book? And I started thinking about, you know, doing something. It started out as a, a love cookbook for two, and then it just progressed into being something else. I started thinking about, adding aphrodisiacs, you know, to the food and nothing that would hurt anybody or really alter their uh, perception of, of reality, but just something that would add an element of fun, you know, for a couple. Mm. Um, also, I started thinking about what happens when someone comes into your home, you know, that, that maybe you've never uh, you don't really know this person. You know, you just met them at a party or something and you invited them over for dinner and, you know, you want to entertain them. So what do you say to them? You know, what do you know about them? What do you know about the interests? Um, do they like sports? You know, do they watch sports? Do they do sports? Uh, do they like the arts? Do they like to go to the opera or, you know, go see orchestras? What is it that they like? So you'll have something to talk about. You know, how are you going to make them feel at home? What do you do when they walk in the door? When they walk in the door, what do they smell in your home? You know, the pleasant smells. Do do they smell roasted chicken smell, you know, mm -hmm. uh, cooking? What is it? So I started thinking about all the senses. You know, what do they hear? Do you have on some really nice music? What is the lighting like? And out of those thoughts, I started writing uh, chapters on, you know, what the lighting might be like and what the atmosphere is that you're going to create. Okay, what now, kind of food are you going to make? Now, what is the name of your book? It's called For Lovers Only, A Cookbook and More. Okay, thank you. And then I decided to put one of my CDs in the back of the book, which was I had already recorded called For Lovers Only. So it fit in with the title, and it would make the package really interesting because not only would you have a two-page book filled with recipes and advice on how to entertain somebody, but you would also have the music to play while you're entertaining them. And it's all mellow music. It's nothing loud and raucous. It's, it's something that would be nice in the background so that you could talk over the music but then you would get this warm ambience of sound. So that was the whole theory of the book. Okay. Thank you. And now the tip of the day. Know thyself. 
Make sure you know yourself, the organization that you're applying to, and of course, what you can do for them. Recruiters are not career counselors, so it is your responsibility to identify opportunities within the organization that could benefit from your own skills and enthusiasm. I'd like to thank my guest, multi-Grammy-nominated artist, Ms. Sherry Winston, for being on the show. And you've been listening to Career Talk. Until next time, stay positive and remember, Success does not come to you. You go to it. You've been listening to Career Talk, a monthly program featuring information on career and academic planning, sponsored by the Rowan University Office of Career Advancement. Tune in on the first Saturday of every month at 9 a.m. for another edition of Career Talk, only on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM.